Hey everyone, my name is Shiashi, and I just wanted to take a quick moment to talk with you all one-on-one about MMIW, which is an acronym for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. It's no secret that the media coverage is grossly disproportionate when it comes to not just Indigenous women, but women of color in general. Fact is, is that the public outcry just isn't the same. Maggie, Osh, and I are all Indigenous women with one common goal. We want you to remember the stories we're about to tell you, and we want you to remember the names of the women that were too easily forgotten. And to our Indigenous brothers and sisters out there, stay strong, and remember, we are resilient. Hey guys, this is Osh. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. So today, we're going to be talking about Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. Before we get this really going, I'm going to tell you a little bit of backstory about who she is, uh, the tribe she's from. And I really wanted to kind of mention this in the story because not many people know about the many different tribes that are out there. I for sure don't, and I'm indigenous. So it's a good way for us to kind of, I guess, for us to kind of learn about other tribes and to help other people learn about other tribes. So I added a bunch of information in that too. Savannah LaFontaine Graywin was born on August 9th, 1995 in North Dakota. In 2017, she was only 22 years old when she was brutally murdered by her neighbor. She was a member of the Spirit Lake Sioux tribe. Have you guys ever heard of that tribe? No, I've never heard of Spirit Lake Sioux tribe. So I've heard of like Sioux in general, like Rosebud Sioux. and Yeah, I've heard of different tribes. Yeah, but or like standing rock. I think they're yeah. all like around that, that same region in North Dakota, but in South Dakota. But yeah, this was a new one for me. So I went to their website, which is spiritlakenation.com. And it says they have a total enrollment of about uh, 7,500 members. Now for perspective, our tribe, the Eastern Band of Cherokee has, I think a little over 16,000 members. So this is about half of that. So it's a fairly small tribe. I would say. Yeah, very small, very small tribe. The Spirit Lake Tribe Reservation was established by treaty between the United States government and the, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, uh, the Sistan Wapaten Sioux Bands in 1867, which put in perspective, that's a very long time that our people have been around. Just throwing that out there. So we're pre-Columbus, we were pre-Columbus people. So yeah, we've been here forever. Right. Uh, but I thought that was a cool thing to throw in there just so people can kind of get a grasp of how how far back um, this particular tribe goes. The reservation is located in east central North Dakota. There is one major river surface uh, body of water, and it's called the Cheyenne River. Now, this forms on the southern boundary of the reservation, and uh, the portion of the Cheyenne within the reservation is about 50 miles long. And ultimately, it discharges into the Red River, which flows between North Dakota, Minnesota, and Manitoba, Canada. Now, the Red River, and I'm mentioning this because the Red River does come into play in this case later on. Savannah lived in a basement apartment in Fargo, North Dakota with her parents, uh, Norberta and Joe Graywind, and her brother. At the time of her death, she was eight months pregnant and planning to move into her own apartment with her boyfriend at the time. By all means, she was really in a place where she was getting ready to start her own family she had started a job as a nursing assistant and was just ready to, to live her life. She was just starting her life. 
it was one of those moments where I feel when I was reading it, that kind of everything was like just coming together for her. It was at that time in her life when just things were just, all the pieces were just falling into place for her, which makes this story all the more tragic. In that same apartment complex lived uh, Brooke Cruz and William Hone. From this point out, I'm just going to refer to them as Cruz and Hone. So Cruz was born in 1979 and she was 38 at the time of Savannah's murder. Uh, she had been twice married before her relationship with Hone. And she had previous children with whom she didn't have custody of or contact with, from my understanding. Hone, I couldn't really find much background in him, but I'm not really upset about it because he's a uh, <laughs> not a good person. So I'm not really interested in telling too much about him. But he was 32 at the time, I believe, uh, when this happened. He's not that important to research. He, he's not that important. <laughs> um, but what I did learn is that he had up to seven kids that he didn't really have custody or contact with as well. So So neither of them have custody of any of their children. No. And between them both, there was nine kids out there that just had a parent that really just didn't give a shit. Now, all the articles I've I've read have really described the relationship between Cruz and Hone as very hostile. They were together, I think, for close to three years before this murder happened. Um, They were known for having really big explosive fights from the pictures I've seen of the apartment complex. It's really, it's very small. So I'm sure any kind of hostile fights or explosive fights, as they're saying, I'm sure the neighbors could hear all that. Hone even pleaded guilty to assaulting Cruz one time before. Now, even though they lived in the same apartment complex, there wasn't much said about the connection between Savannah, her family, or Cruz and Hone, other than the fact that they just lived in the same building. So on August 19th, 2017, it was a Saturday and Cruz had apparently approached Savannah to model a dress she had made, even offering to pay her $20 for her help. Now, this seems sketchy to me anyways, because one, Savannah is eight months pregnant at this time, unless you're just full on making maternity wear up there. It just right. seems, kinda, seems odd. Yeah. yeah. Very odd. But from what I read, she was a very kind person. She wanted to help people. She agreed to help Cruz. By 4 p.m. that same day, Savannah's mother, Norberta, was starting to get worried. She had been texting Savannah all afternoon and getting no response. This was unusual from what I've seen and from what I've read about her not answering, because from what I've gathered is that she was very responsive. She was responsive with texts, with calls. It's also a little concerning because one, she's eight months pregnant. So I could understand why her mom would worry and want to be sure that she's okay. Typically, when you're close to the end of your pregnancy, you you kind of stay in contact with someone all the time, just in case you go into labor. You always, mm-hmm. I know I did always text. I was like, hey, I'm leaving work. Yeah. Hey, I'm here. I'll be home around this time. Yeah. And we don't even know during this time if she had complications, if there was things throughout her pregnancy that they were concerned about. Um, I just right. think in general, she was just like, she's eight months pregnant. She's not answering the phone. At that point, I think my mind would be like racing with all kinds of scenarios about where she's at. Did she have the baby? Something happened. So I can her only mom, imagine. Her mom, just probably had, her mom probably just had a gut feeling. So again, lots of thoughts are probably going in her head. Why is this taking so long? Why is she answering? Did something happen? Did she go into labor? All the thoughts the mother would have when your intuition is telling you something's wrong. So she goes and knocks on Cruz's door and Cruz tells her that Savannah left around 2.45. Now this leaves Norberta with, with even more of a sinking feeling because at this time it's 4.30. And so what she's thinking is, okay, Savannah's purse is still in the apartment. 
Savannah's car is still here. It has not moved this entire time. She had been complaining about her how swollen her feet were. So for her to take off on foot didn't seem possible. And why would she leave without any of her stuff? So how did the mom know to go upstairs and look with the neighbors? Was was there evidence they were friends before or? Before Savannah went up to the neighbors, she had actually texted her mom and her boyfriend telling her specifically where she was going. So, they, so you couldn't they, find any evidence that they were actually friends or anything? Mm-mm. From what I gathered, they just knew each other. It's, I, I'm assuming it's probably one of those situations where you all live in the same apartment complex. You probably pass each other in the hallways or in the parking lot. So you're familiar with somebody in that sense. But nothing says that they were actually friends. And this was something that she did on a regular for Cruz. Norberta, I guess, just has that mother's instinct because she didn't trust Cruz or Hone uh, from the get-go. You know, from their all their fights and all the stuff going on, she just had like a really bad feeling about that. And I think we all have that feeling. There's people, there's some sketch people out there that we see, and we're just like, mm, I'm gonna stay away from that person because they're just giving off the the vibes, you know, that you don't want to <laughs> be around them. And living in an apartment complex, I mean, you can be cordial with people, but I personally, when I lived in one, I, you know, I didn't associate with a lot of the people that even live in the same building. Mm-hmm. But you are familiar enough with them because you've seen them. Yeah, but never oh, yeah. comfortable enough to go up to their apartment, you know? So you're telling me if someone walked up to you in that apartment and said, hey, Maggie, come on, try this skirt. And you're like, I had no idea who they were. You'd just be like, nope, ain't doing it. I'm busy. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I can do because no, <laughs> grown folks don't need your help. Yeah, that's true. Besides, grown my neighbor in my apartment complex <laughs> stole all my pants out of the dryer one time. What? <laughs> All of my pants. There was communal oh laundry, and I had no pa- no jeans. <laughs> and I know it was oh her because I saw her wearing them. <laughs> oh my god! Did you say something? Were you like, "Hey, those are mine"? No, I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that I make a lot of ribbon skirts here lately. I actually bought a little skirt mannequin <laughs> on Amazon. I got a skirt and a top on it. It's really creepy. It scared me the first night because I didn't. I forgot it was here. I find it odd that you would ask an eight-month pregnant woman to model a dress for you. It is weird because, you know, when you see a pregnant woman and she's that pregnant, your immediate response as a mother is like, oh, my God, you know, like she must be miserable. Like, I'm not going to ask her to waddle up the stairs and try on a skirt for me. Savannah probably had some reservations about it, but from what I've read, she was just a very kind person, so... She'll just be nice. Yeah. Maybe it's just one of those situations, I guess. If, you know, if you got something that's like flashing in your mind that this, you know, feels off, it's, you got to trust them instincts, man. I'm sure she went up there not thinking that the worst was absolutely going to happen. And the worst did actually happen. Because of the level of fights this couple had, Roberta was very uneasy about this. She called the Fargo to police department around 4.30. But by four o'clock, she was like, this is unusual. She goes up and knocks. Crew says, oh, she left at 2.45. So this is just a 30-minute time frame that Savannah's mother was like, "Uh uh-uh, this don't feel right. I'm calling the police. The police arrived that day. I was kind of surprised to read because in most cases you hear about, they usually are, they, it's like what, 24 hours or 48 hours, or there's some kind of like minimum for an adult, you know, for children, I think they respond more quickly. So maybe her being pregnant had something to do with it. I would imagine so. I guess the likelihood of her just kind of taking off at eight months pregnant is, would be slim, but the police arrived, they went to Cruz and Hone's apartment and the search turned up nothing. They returned the next day on the 20th and the search turned up nothing. 
as they were doing their investigating, they ended up stopping by where Hone worked and it was at some kind of roofing company. They questioned his coworkers and the police learned from his coworkers that he had a new baby at home. And because of this, they were able to get another warrant, warrant, warrant. Oh my God. They were able to get another warrant and they searched her apartment on the 24th. Now, just as a reminder, this was the 19th when she went up to Cruz's apartment and disappeared. So this is what? I can't count. Five five days later. So when they interviewed the coworkers, did they find it suspicious that they had a newborn? Were they just like, were they saying that as like a tip or were they saying it as just, oh yeah, he's not here today because he has a newborn at home? They didn't really go into specific details about that. But later on, Cruz had apparently faked a pregnancy for a while. It kind of plays into, I guess, her whatever reasoning she had for doing what she did. So maybe it was plausible to the co-workers if Hone believed she was pregnant, but I'm not sure. When the police went to the apartment, on the bed laid a healthy little baby girl. Cruz was immediately arrested and Hones was arrested at work. Uh, It would be three days after the arrest that Savannah Graywin's body would be discovered by kayakers floating in the Red River. So what were they arrested for if they didn't have a body? Were they just arrested? I mean, how did they know that that wasn't their baby? And how did they arrest them so quickly? It was during this time that they did a DNA test on the baby and it was determined to be Savannah's. So I guess as soon as they found the baby, they just assumed it was hers and just did a DNA test. Yeah, I think at that point, all the pieces, there, I think there was enough reasonable evidence yeah. there. Is it um, because she was last seen in their apartment and she was pregnant and now all of a sudden they got this newborn baby? Baby just appeared out of nowhere. So what happened on August 19th? On December 11th, 2017, Cruz did plead guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, and lying to police. And it was during her testimony that Savannah's family learned the awful truth of what happened the day she disappeared. So I'm going to mention a disclaimer here because the details of Savannah's murder, it's horrific. So if you don't want to hear this part, go ahead and skip ahead now. So when Savannah entered Cruz's apartment, Cruz immediately began some kind of argument. They ended up fighting in the bathroom where Cruz pushed Savannah, who hit her head on the bathroom sink. Now, this is when Cruz went into the kitchen grabbed a knife, returned to the bathroom to begin cutting into Savannah's belly and pulling the baby out of the womb. So she just hit her head and was unconscious, right? Like she wasn't dead. She was apparently in and out of consciousness because of the significant amount of blood loss. But from what I gather, she was still alive Alive? during this. Oh my gosh. How scary. I know. So when Holmes arrived uh, to find Cruz cleaning up blood on the bathroom floor, she reportedly picked up the baby and told Holmes, this is our baby. According to Cruz, he then asked if Savannah was dead. And she said, I don't know. Please help me. This is when Holmes left the bathroom, came back with a rope, tightened it around Savannah's neck until she was no longer breathing. And then said, if she wasn't dead before, she is now. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. The two then stashed Savannah's body in the bathroom closet and finished cleaning up the blood. So what I, in a closet? Yeah. So what I find infuriating is that prior to the arrest of both Cruz and Hone, the police searched that apartment not one time, but twice. So, so I wonder how much they were able to search, though. So they weren't under arrest. It was just like the last place she was seen. So I bet they have to get permission to look anywhere. Well, I guess my question is, is from, from the attack, it. there's... That's there's, what I was going to say. Well, there's got to be like... Body. Well, you can think of how much blood, too. Like, how much 
effort did they take to clean up? I'm sure it was like an exorbitant amount of blood. Did the bathroom smell of bleach? You know, just trying to think of all these things that they probably had to do to clean up something as this just cannot be the first time they've done something like this for her to after i mean she was just knocked out and her immediate thought was to go in there and get a knife and cut her open while still alive like that's just insane it's very brazen and very just almost like that was the thought i'm gonna get a knife i'm gonna cut this baby out you know like there's it just um I think I, I've taken it back by the level of like boldness and directness this action was, but these are bad people and we're not killers. So I, I think it would be hard for us really to fathom just kind of. And what a miracle for the baby to even survive, like to be cut, mm-hmm. the mom to be cut open with a kitchen knife. Yeah. And the baby pulled out and still live. Mm-hmm. A month early. Yeah. That too. Uh, and you know, the, the baby wasn't found till five days after she was missing. So, you know, there wasn't any kind of like immediate medical care or anything like that for this baby. And, and they referred to this, uh, her later as a miracle baby. And at this point, I think she definitely was. What we find out is that during the actual search, the baby was there, but she was placed under a blanket next to home. And then we find out again on the 20th, when they did a search, he had hollowed out a dresser to stash uh, Savannah's body in. So they moved her from the closet and to this hollowed out dresser and hit her in there. That following morning, uh, Cruz and Hone put the dresser in their Jeep and drove to a bridge, hauling the dresser over the side into the Red River. Um, Nobody seen them. I haven't got any reports. They probably seen them lugging a dresser down the stairs. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you? A dead body? If you were being, like, if it were me and if it were my significant other, I'd be watching these people, like, every move they made. I'd have a chance outside their apartment. Just watching. Yeah. Like, someone had to have seen them. I mean, apartments are... I mean, you would hear that yeah. for each apartment in that unit. I guess from a distance. They weren't like actual suspects. Yeah. yeah. So from a distance, they're just moving a dresser. And, you know, how many people's first thought is like, there might be a body in there. You know, she could be in that dresser. I don't I don't think that would be my first thought. I'd be like, they're probably trying to get the hell out of here and trying to move out and get away or something. I don't know. But when her body was recovered, from what I understand, uh, the dresser has still not been found. During the testimony, Cruz admitted that during the argument with Hone, he had demanded that she produce a baby or he would leave her after finding out she had been faking a pregnancy prior. She was sentenced on February 2nd, 2018 to life in prison without the chance of parole. On the stand, she stated, I can't undo what I've done, but I can do everything in my power to own up to what I did. And I'm sorry, but like, what, what good is that at this point? You should have done it. Right. There was no reason to murder an innocent woman. And um, destroyed her life and her family's life. Yeah. And think about this baby and, the, you know, what this baby's going to learn when she gets older. I just hate statements like that from, like, monsters. I don't care about hearing about your redemption or whatever. You murdered an innocent person. I mean, put two people's lives at risk. She could have easily killed the baby, too. That's true. On September 4th, 2018, Hone pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit kidnapping and lying to the police. He pleaded not guilty to conspiracy to commit murder, claiming he didn't know of Cruz's plan to murder Savannah. But he basically told her to get a baby or, you know, threatened her with whatever he threatened well, her with. And he tied so how do you not have any part in that? Well, he, remember he tied the rope around her neck, too. And was like, well, she's not dead. She is now. Well, he was uh, saying he didn't plan it, right? Yeah, but still murder yeah i mean maybe not conspiracy but he definitely helped yeah he was tried and acquitted of this charge on september 28 2018 he had faced up to 21 years behind bars 
but the judge presiding over the case granted the prosecutor's request to label Hone as a dangerous offender. This in turn increased his time to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This sentence was overturned by the North Dakota Supreme Court, and in October 2019, he was resentenced to only 20 years in prison for his part in Savannah's death. That's all. 20 years for strangling her essentially with the rope, hiding that baby. Hiding the body. It just blows my mind. Well, and he was the one that ultimately ended her life, you know? What Cruz did was she was still alive. Yeah. Apparently Cruz was like, I don't know if she's dead. Help me. And he was like, yeah. So he was the one that ultimately probably ended her life. He was 32 at the time when this happened. In 20 years, he's only going to be 52 years old. That's still relatively young. And what kind of monster is that walking around? You know, what's crazy to me is that sex offenders have to be on a registry for the rest of their lives, which sex offenses are horrific. And, you know, especially for children, you know, that's just unthinkable and unfathomable. But to think that a murderer can be out walking the streets like a normal person with like no requirements for other people to be aware of, it's just scary to think about. That is real scary living like right next door and no clue that this man helped kill this woman and dispose of her body. But here he is checking his mailbox and stuff. It's, it's, it's really scary. Like how many people are probably out there like this? And we just don't know. I've read somewhere that in a lifetime we pass, how many people, I mean, how many times do we pass a murder? Someone who's killed someone and never been caught. Oh my gosh. And that's why I just think like, Grown men don't need your help. If you're a woman, yeah. if you're a child, a grown man does not need your help. Just say no. Just be rude. <laughs> don't be rude to me. I think that's be rude to me. And people wonder why there's this movement and, you know, women have to go through all these things to protect themselves and take all these precautions just to go on a run. You know, Maggie, you're a runner. And Osh, you both are runners. I'm, I'm more of a, like a brisk walker, but... <laughs> Either way, you guys know, you guys have to take precautions when you guys try to just do a a run because there's all kinds of creepers and crazies out there. Well, and there's always this stigma too, and more so around Native American women, I think, that we're just rude. But in reality, I feel like, you know, I don't feel comfortable addressing people that I don't really know. A lot of the reason is because of stuff like this, you know, you really don't know people and, you know, just like walking on the street doesn't happen to us here, but like in bigger cities, you get like cat called and accosted. And my first response is just to not respond at all. So I think that there's a stigma too for women. Yeah. Well, cause if you do respond, what, you know, what's the likelihood that you're going to piss off the wrong person and they're going to respond in a way that's going to put you in a life-threatening situation. And in doing this research, it said American Indian women face murder rates that are 10 times more than the national average, which is scary. You know, we're all three indigenous women and this statistic, this is us. I think that's why being able to have this podcast and being able to tell these stories is so important, not only to humanize indigenous women and to let people see that we are actual people. We are part of this society. We're here. But just to show that this, you know, I'll get into it in a little bit about the reporting when it comes to the national database for missing and murdered Indigenous women. It's just, it's really behind. It's really sad to see. So how is the family now? Well, the daughter's name is H-A-I-S-L-E-Y. That Hasley or Hazley? Hazley, Joe? Maybe Hazley. She's living with her father. Um, She will actually be four this year. And she has been described as a happy baby who is always smiling. 
So the reason I picked this story, not only because it's a story that should be told, is because, again, we know that stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women have largely been ignored. Savannah's murder led to the passing of a bill that's known as Savannah's Act. It was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives and signed into law by former President Trump on October 2020. I'm going to go into a little detail about what this bill requires. This bill requires the Department of Justice to provide training to law enforcement agencies on how to record tribal enrollment for victims in federal databases, develop and implement a strategy to educate the public on national missing and unidentified person system, conduct specific outreach to tribes, tribal organizations, and urban Indian organizations regarding the ability to publicly enter information through the national missing and unidentified person system develop regionally appropriate guidelines to response to cases of missing or murdered Native Americans, provide training and technical assistance to tribes and law enforcement agencies for implementation of the developed guidelines, report statistics on missing or murdered Native Americans. Basically, and you know, you guys could attest to this as we've done our research, finding stories has not been easy. It's been largely ignored. There's not a lot of information. A lot of what I've had to go by are news reportings and things like that that I found in doing my research. And I'm sure you guys have kind of had the same kind of issues is that there's not really a large of information. Yeah. There's not a lot of attention to most of these cases. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something horrific that you would have thought would have been like making headline news, but I don't recall this. Well, and if you think no, about just, you know, how the murder rates are... 10 times the national average, you think we'd be hearing a lot more about these stories and there would be more outrage than there is now. But just the fact I feel that like it comes in waves too. Like when there's like indigenous support, it's not like throughout the year. I feel like there's certain times where it's more predominant than it is at others. Like right now, you know, we're not hearing a lot about missing and murdered indigenous women. But when it was the month of the awareness, you know, we did a lot. Um, and it's just kind of sad that it takes a month of awareness for people to kind of say, oh yeah, you know, this is an issue. Well, and we look at the, um, the number of the kids that were found at those residential schools in Canada, that number has been like rising, like with every week. It's in the thousands. Yeah. I think the last thing you don't hear about it anymore. No. And like, Mm -hmm. where's the outrage on that? These are children. Where is the outrage on this? And where is the, the sense of justice for these children? And it's crickets and it's, it's, really really hard to see and what's unique about your story is that there's closure there's we know what happened to her we know who did it there's so many stories that are unsolved that's true and there's so many families that just wish they would find a body sadly can you imagine just like longing for your loved one and then the only hope you have is to just find their remains so basically savannah's act will combat the epidemic of murdered and missing native women and girls by improving the coordination among law enforcement offices increased data collection and information sharing, and empowers tribal governments with the resources they need in cases involving missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So that's just a little quick breakdown of what this bill is going to do. Some statistics I found from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women are pretty staggering. And personally, as an Indigenous woman, it was really hard to, uh, to read through it. According to them, Four out of five of our Native women are affected by violence today. Homicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24 years of age and the fifth leading cause of death for American Indian and Alaska Native women between 25 and 34 years of age. And that's according to the CDC. And then again, uh, I reiterate that 
the Department of Justice found that American Indian women face murder rates that are 10 times more than the national average. Um, I wonder why. I wonder why. Why why we're targeted? Yeah. I mean, we're not the dominant population here. That's true. And maybe this is something that stems back that's maybe systemic in some way from how natives were treated from the very first moment that non-natives came over and declared this, you know, their land. But it's systemic for all people of color. I've read multiple books on just like being aware of how minorities are basically pitted against in everything, even just in regards to home loans for a while. Like it was harder as a minority, even if you had the same income as a non-person of color, then you couldn't get approved for the same loan simply because you were a minority. So I think it's just like our country's perception of people of color being something that is beneath white people, unfortunately. Yeah. So they don't see them as just women. They see them as brown women. Just from the treatment of how Native women have been treated since the very first contact was made. I mean, it just seems like it's 2021 and it hasn't gotten any better. These uh, statistics are it's just wild to me. But I don't know. And I'm sure it's probably gotten worse with the rise of like sex trafficking and things like that and human trafficking. And there's a lot that's wanting to work against us as indigenous women in today's world. I'm going to end this with a quote. And I found it from my girl, Deb Holland, who is the U.S. Interior Secretary. And she said, every woman deserves to feel safe, but women in native communities are going missing without a trace. This crisis is real for women and families in Indian country. Think about imagining being a mother with a missing child or even a child with a mother who disappeared without telling anybody. This is a crisis that has gone on for far too long. Part of the problem is that this has been a silent crisis. No one is keeping track. It's not covered in mainstream media and data is lacking everywhere. Sometimes the record of that missing indigenous woman or person isn't documented, leaving questions unanswered for sometimes decades, leading to gaps in information, missing person cases unsolved, and perpetrators roaming the streets. I think that it's important that we get these stories out and that people don't forget about these women and their stories and the difference that they make. And I think that it's our job to continue to say their name and share their story and to bring awareness to this problem in Indian country. So that, guys, was the story of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. I think it was a powerful story, and I think it was a good story to start this podcast with because it kind of lays the framework of what we're trying to do and tell these stories and tell why these stories are important. We do this for Indigenous women like Savannah so that who she is and who she is as an Indigenous woman will always be remembered. Don't help strangers. (laughs) That's true. Don't help strangers. Uh, we hear it all the time. Trust your instincts. Be rude if you have to. You ain't got to tell us. Stop catcalling and let us run in peace. Let these girls, let me brisk walk, you know, <laughs> and listen to my K-pop in peace. I look like the crazy person when I run because I stare everybody in the eye so I can remember their face. <laughs> I'm like, I, I saw you. I see you. I can identify you. <laughs> Mental picture. I carry, I carry um, mace. So don't even try to like jump out and be like, hey, did you want to get mace? Oh my gosh. I'm going to well, be I'm so better. terrified that I'll like fumble it around. I have some too, but I'm terrified if it came down to it, I would like spray it upwind and then get both of us. And then I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to do better. I'm just like bebopping through town. I did stop wearing both AirPods though. Now I only wear one. But then it's, it's off. Uh, it, yeah. Anywho, stay safe, guys. Stay safe out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links for information found in this episode and to stay up to date on what's coming next, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com. Thank you.